In Revelation 14, we have information that continues to the point in Revelation 13. You may remember that in Revelation 13, John talks about a couple beasts. In Revelation 14, where we ended last week, he says that some were worshiping the beast. To worship the beast, of course, is to do things contrary to God's will. And John says people who make that choice are not going to fare very well. We stop with Revelation 14, verse 10. The paragraph really begins in verse 9 in the ASV. He says, and another angel, a third followed them, saying with a great voice, If any man, if any man worships the beast in his image and receives the mark on his forehead or upon his hand, then in verse 10, here's the promise or the consequence. He shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is prepared unmixed in the cup of his anger. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. We got that far, and then we'll pick up with the additional description about hell in verse 11. We discussed last week ancient people, when they made wine, unless they were really you know, uh, involved with debauchery, they would go ahead and mix that wine, usually between two and four, two to six parts water with one part wine, so it was really a uh, significantly diluted substance uh, as far as a beverage. But when God says here, the wine of his wrath is going to be um, you know, ingested unmixed. What does that say? It's not, yeah. Hell is going to be a full strength experience. There's not going to be anything about it that is reduced in force. As John then, verses 11 and 12, continues a description of what it's going to be like in the afterlife for the unsaved, he says, and the smoke of their torment goeth up forever and ever, and they have no rest day and night. They that worship the beast in his image, and whoso receiveth the mark of his name. Here is the patience of the saints that they keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. Some scary information. In addition to what we have there in verse 10, he talks about the smoke of torment. And I don't know about you, but anybody ever work in an environment that had a lot of smoke? I've been there for four years in the military, and I can recall some times where they talk about smoke that's so thick that you cut it with a knife. I've been in some of those rooms. You've got six or eight people, very small room, about like what you have up here in the front, and everybody is really you know, puffing for a long time, and there's not much as far as air circulation. And it is, uh, it's not typically a good experience. Now, if you're a smoker and you, you know, are accustomed to that, it may not be so bad for you, but uh, it's a very vivid image, and it's not a pleasant image. To impress on us how bad it is, John talks about torment. He says, and it goes up how long? Forever. I mean, it's one thing to be in a meeting for an hour or half a day or a full day or a week or a month or a year. When the Bible talks about hell, though, it talks about it in, with very, very uh, drastic imagery and suggests that we certainly do not want to be there. And if all that's not enough, what do we then find at the end of verse 11? They have no rest. People generally want some kind of rest, but John says there is no rest. Day and night there is this ongoing state of agony. If people choose to reject God's will for anything else, and the ways of the world, of course, offer many options to people, they're going to make a choice that they regret for eternity. Now, this is interesting because, and we might say relevant, because of how people act and, act and think today. We, and I think we understand why people do this, but we sometimes see a situation where someone who's not a Christian, someone who uh, has never obeyed the gospel, someone who's in a wrong relationship with Christ dies. This individual has been sick for a long time. What do people often say? Oh, he or she is out of their misery. They're no longer suffering. They've gone to a better place. Well, that's not true. When people die outside of Christ, and they've not gone to hell yet, Luke 16 tells us that they go into the Hadean realm, 
there are two sections there, but even the section of the Hadean realm that is the torment side, the side for the unrighteous, it's not pleasant. You know, the man that went there, Jesus described him as saying, I'm in anguish in this flame. So we can, as I say, understand why people would make this statement, but if we have a reasonable amount of Bible knowledge, that statement shouldn't be coming from us. Because that gives false hope to people, and I don't know that we need to just you know, pour on the coals and say, well, let's run over here to Revelation 14 and show you what the Bible says about that person. But at the same time, we certainly do not want to put ourselves in a position where we're, we're lying to people. Uh, God is going to be the judge. That's something that we can say. That's fair and right. Jesus taught that in John chapter 5. But the idea that we go around and say, well, you know, they're at peace right now. Well, the Bible just doesn't give us the authority to say that kind of thing. Any points that you want to make before we pick up with our next piece of information? Harvey? Sure, and that is absolutely right. He's going to do what's right for all people. We're going to see that judgment at the end of this chapter. Right. It is, but a lot of people, they want to give that extra sense of peace and consolation so they're out of their suffering right now. Well, they're no longer suffering from this uh, you know, affliction as far as a physical problem, but to give the impression that their suffering has been completely eliminated, you can't do that, but that would be another good way to deal with it. Okay, some other things that we have here in Revelation 14, verses 11 and 12. John, as we look there at verse 12, he tells us that Christians understand the great need to serve God faithfully, to do what's right. There's a reason for that, as we'll see in verse 13. Non-Christians, though, oftentimes pay little attention to this, uh, this way of life. They want to make their earthly lives easier and happier, more materially, more materially prosperous, and so forth. But John said Christians, they keep what? The... They keep the commandments of God, and then, of course, you have here uh, the idea of perseverance as well. Now, this is important. If you go back across the page a little bit, Revelation chapter 12, verse 17, John talks about the devil, or in this case, the dragon. He says, the dragon waxed wroth with the woman, that is, the church, and went away to make war with the rest of her seed. Well, if we're going to live the Christian life, Revelation 14, verse 12, we have someone who is going to try to destroy us as we continue to live out on the earth. And that, of course, is going to be Satan. Should we serve God because we fear hell? Should we serve God out of fear? Okay, you're on the right track. I'm going to state it a little differently than you, you are. All right, we don't serve God because of fear. You know, sometimes you have a situation where a child obeys, not because if there's any love for mom or dad. The story about the Boston bombing, one of the things that caught my attention, I don't know if it was one son or both, but at least one of the children, dad timed how long it was going to take to get from school to the house. And let's just say for the sake of argument that it's 20 minutes. And maybe, you know, dad didn't drive real fast, but he said 20 minutes. And if that child was a minute late, he was beaten. Well, I think if that had been me, I probably would have made it within the a lot of time, every time. You know, so he would have uh, obeyed, but that obedience wouldn't have been based on love. It would have been based on fear of being beaten or you know, somehow abused on a regular basis. We don't fear God for that reason. But to go back to the point that Scott was making just a moment ago, we also, as we serve God out of love, we're also mindful of what? We were making the right choice because other alternatives are not things that we want to experience. So it's, it's the right motivation and at the same time, we do bear in mind the consequence for the people who do decide to stay outside of Christ. More than a few of God's people have had to live with a beast. 
And that, of course, could be opposition from civil government. It could be persecution from false religion, those kinds of things. But John makes it clear that God's people are willing to do whatever is necessary. They're willing even to surrender their physical lives if necessary to not turn from the faith of Christ. When we look at the faith that John describes here in verse 12, here is the patience of the saints that they keep the commandments of God. And how many people have the faith instead of just faith? Okay, their faith... Uh, anybody else? The faith? Anybody have just faith? Okay, well that's good. Translators were trying to tell us something. Uh, their, their faith is probably not quite as precise, but when we talk about the faith, does that sound like that's personal faith, or does that sound like that's something else? All right, we're talking in the sense of the gospel. It's not their personal faith, which, which does exist, we have to have that, but it's talking about they keep the faith that is the system of Christianity, the system of religion that God has given through his word. Anything that you want to touch base on before we pick up with Revelation 14, 13? Sure. There again, you get back to the seven ones, one faith, one Lord, uh, you know, one God and Father of all, one hope, and so forth. Okay, Revelation 14, 13. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Right, blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. From henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their works follow them. Now we have a contrast. You have the unsaved. John's talked about them. They're going to be in that place called hell. The place where the smoke is there, the torment goes on day and night. There is no rest for them. But in contrast to that, John also says there are going to be some people who are in Christ and they die in Christ. These people are blessed. Why is it such a blessing to die in Christ? Well, all right. Now that hope is, is starting to be realized at the point of death. So that's one the one hope in Ephesians 4. That would be one thing that would certainly be true. Why else? Are we freed from some things at death? What happens with Satan's reach when we die? All right. You know, we're, we're cut off from him. So as far as the devil, no more contact there. What about temptation? Well, that's, that's gone. What about persecution? That's also going to be uh, something that we leave behind. So... Dying in the Lord, we can understand why John says that this is going to be a blessed state for God's people. He also uses the idea of rest. If you were to go back to the book of Joshua, it's Joshua chapter 21, verses 43 through 44. You have God's people, they've come out of Egyptian bondage, and now they are in the land. And Joshua 21 says that they found rest. As with some other things that we find in the Old Testament, remember we've said repeatedly that things in the Old Testament, Moses and the deliverance from uh, Egyptian bondage and the plagues. We'll see these a little bit in Revelation chapter 15, those Old Testament plagues. All these things were historical events. But what did they point to? They pointed forward to things in the New Testament. You've got information about Adam, pointed forward to Christ. You've got information about the one ark, it pointed forward to the church. All kinds of people and all kinds of things and even places in the Old Testament. The festivals, the feasts, they pointed forward to various things. Uh, the city of Jerusalem pointed forward to various things. Uh, the Old Testament priesthood pointed forward to things in the New Testament. So, Old Testament has a lot of information about Israel, but it also has a lot of information that was uh, sort of concealing, if you will, items that we now have in the New Testament. So, people are either going to die in Christ because they were a faithful Christian or too young, too uh, mentally incompetent to be accountable for their actions, or they're going to be on the other side of the fence. How do we enter into Christ initially? The Bible says those who die in Christ, they die in the Lord. Well, how do we initially get that relationship established? 
All right, Galatians 3.27, right? For as many of you as were baptized into Christ. Well, that's how it starts. But how is that relationship maintained? Or is it we're baptized into him and we can't break it? All right, well, that's what we see here, isn't it? If you go back to Revelation 14.12, what did he say there? Here is the patience of the saints. Here is the endurance of the saints. We have to uh, continue... We have to endure, if you will. We have to stay on board. Otherwise, we're not going to die in Christ. Now, if we back up a little bit, and we'll get a couple readers here. Let's head somebody back to Revelation 3. This is, of course, the section where John talks about the seven churches of Asia. We'll have somebody read from Revelation 3, verses 1, plus 15 and 16. That'll be Steve. And then we also want to look at something that Paul wrote uh, when he penned the letter to Titus. Titus 2, verse 14. Who'd like Josh is going to get that one for us? Let's start Revelation 3, verses 1, 15, and 16. Steve. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things saith he that the seven spirits of God and the seven stars, I know thy works, that thou hast a name, that thou livest, and thou art dead. Okay, Sardis, the word works is specifically associated with this congregation and John, speaking for deity, said, I know thy works. Works was something that mattered to God. Revelation 3, 1. 15 and 16. I know thy works, that thou art neither cold nor hot. I would thou wert cold or hot. So because thou art lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spew thee out of my mouth. Okay. Laodicea is the second group. Sardis the first group that he read about. And in both congregations, God says, I know your works. I'm paying attention to the things that you do. Well, this is what we see as far as when we look at Revelation 14. There is attention on the works. The works, John said, follow them. Something that God closely monitors. All right? Here's Paul's version of it. Titus 2, verse 14. Josh? Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness, and to purify for himself the people for his own possession, for his zealous for good works. Hmm. Well, who are the people who are intended to be God's own possession? Well, no, who, who are the people? Who are God's people? Us. Oh, all right. We are Christians, right? The saved. And he created these people to be zealous. That was the right word. Zealous in good works. Well, these works, John says in Revelation 14, verse 13, they follow God's people. Now, commentators differ a little bit uh, as far as what this means, but there are some conclusions that we can be very firm with. For example, it seems to me that you have to draw a distinction between the word labor and the word work. Now, that distinction might not be completely clear in English, but if you go back and you look at the word that's translated labor, it is a word which describes weariness. Weariness. Now, most of us have been in a position, at least from uh, time to time, where we have worked in such a way where we're weary. There have been times we have labored so hard, it may be out in the yard, it may be that we've had uh, you know, a really long week at work, but whatever it is, after that time has come, we say, we're weary, we're tired. We uh, either want some rest or we have to rest because we are so tired. Well, this is the imagery, this is the idea that John associates with Christianity. Here is a person who's lived the Christian life, and there are exceptions. You, for example, will find somebody that's maybe baptized today, uh, brought into Christ, and they, they die that same day they die within a week or a month. They don't have very long to labor for Christ. But typically, uh, people will become a Christian and they'll be given many years to live the Christian life. What we're seeing in Titus 2, verse 14, Revelation 3, 
And now here in Revelation 14 suggests that as we live that life for Christ, there should be a state where we reach where we finally get to the end of life and say, I'm tired. I've been doing my best to labor for the Lord for many years, and now I'm ready to lay it down. And people get to that point sometimes for a lot of different reasons. Sometimes it's just health, and people just say, I want to die. I think most of us have seen someone in that set of circumstances. They would say, I'm so sick, I'm so old, I'm so this, I'm so that. I just want to die. But for the Christian, God says, I intend life to be a little different for you. I intend for you to be so busy in my service that you get to a point where you just feel like, uh, well, Paul, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8, he says, I fought the fight. I finished the course. Laid up for me henceforth is the crown of life. There is that crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, is going to give not only to me, but to all of them that have loved his appearing. So you begin to get this picture, and isn't it a picture that is completely contrary to the world? You see people in the world, they get to the end of their life, and boy, they just they fight and they struggle to continue to have another day, another hour of life. But for the Christian, it's what? God, I've run the race. God, I've lived the life, and now it's time for me to go home. That's what John says in Revelation 14. That needs to be our view of life. But to have that view of life, then what does our work need to be filled with? That labor for Christ. So we get to the state of weariness. Harvey? I think uh, a lot of times non-Christian is afraid of Sure. Sure, you, you do have the people who have the faith, but with that faith, you've got these activities, Titus 2, Revelation 3, and now uh, another good cross-reference, James 2, faith without works is dead. Well, that's the same teaching by James. It's just expressed in a slightly different way. So we see that same kind of thing coming through here. Now, John, anybody else want to say something about that before we kind of switch gears a bit? Sure, it is. And a lot of people, it's absolutely contrary to the idea um, that we see when it comes to many of the ideas about Christianity. We're just going to kind of slide in the door. That's not the picture in in Revelation or really any other Bible book when we start talking about James and the other passages. Um, It's not exactly clear how the works are going to follow the saved. I'm going to give a couple of suggestions and uh, at this point offer an illustration as well. I've thought a good bit about this um, over the years and especially lately. And my best illustration, I think, is found in the military. Some of here have served in the military, some not. But think about a military unit. Uh, and maybe instead of you know, a, a full army, just think about it as far as a battalion to simplify the illustration a bit. Now, you've got, uh, let's say, 100 fellas. I don't know in army terms how big a battalion is, but in the unit, let's say that we've got 100 people. In that unit of 100 people, you think some people did different things? Yeah, I'd say so. There are probably some people, depending on what it did, that, that could have seen combat time. And presumably some that didn't serve in combat roles. So you have within that military unit people who did all kinds of different things. Some may have been more dangerous than others. Some may have required more courage than others. Some in the military unit may have displayed more courage than others. And as you look at that military unit, if you bring all the guys together, everybody going to have the same medals? Probably not. You may have one guy over here, he's got a purple heart because he lost a leg or he was shot up. may have another guy over here, Um, he's recognized for his number of years in the service. 
One guy served two years or four years, this guy served 30. And yet, even though you have these various distinctions, don't you also have great unity? You typically don't find jealousy in the military. I mean, one guy doesn't say, well, I'm jealous of your Purple Heart. No, you served in this way, I served in this way. And there are some individual distinctions, but at the same time, the fact that you were all involved with the same military campaigns, the fact perhaps, it's, perhaps that you were all serving under the same military commander, those unifying forces are the things that really count. Distinctions, yes, but also the singleness of the unit is the biggest item. Well, that's the best illustration that I can give of what uh, eternity may be like and what John may be uh, describing here. Another thing I think that you can draw out from using the military analogy is when you have all those guys together, what's true about AWOL? These guys were all committed. Now, there may have been some cases where they decided to jump ship and maybe drifted a little bit, but they came back. And they all, for their time in the service, were committed to that military unit, the commander, that country, whatever it was. Well, that's a biblical illustration because Christ does picture the Christian life as a soldier and so forth. The church is compared to an army and uh, different things. So, um, you know, maybe that's kind of, when we think about soldiers, their individual accomplishments, maybe that's what John has at least partly in mind when he talks about their works following them. There's another thing that I think we can draw from the military analogy. May not have served, but we would be able to answer this question. Here's a fellow, he says, well, I've got a gun, and I've shot it. I've got a pair of camel pants, and I wear them from time to time. Well, is owning and firing a gun and wearing some camel pants from time to time going to make you a member of the military? Not going to cut it. Now, you may do some of the same things that guys in the military do, but there's more to it than that. <laughs> he could be a terrorist. But draw the parallel to that when it comes to Christianity. Here's a guy, he says, well, I've got a Bible. I pray from time to time. I attend some worship services. Well, I think that may not be enough to make us a Christian. Yeah, I mean, we've sort of got the outer markings of the Christian. But remember what John describes in Revelation 14, 13. As he pictures the righteous, he says, these people are tired. These people are weary. Now, there are a lot of people who die tired and weary for a lot of reasons. But the one reason that we're going to find associated with the saved is that they were involved on a regular basis with works. And I understand that people do different things. Uh, the time that people have uh, has, you know, varies and so forth. But compare this to the idea where people say, well, you know, I'm going to retire. And we hear this sometimes from Christians. I'm going to retire at this particular time, and then what am I going to do? I'm going to live for me. Mm, well, from a Christian perspective, that's a problem. Now, you may not have as much of this, that, and the other thing uh, to uh, use when it comes to service for Christ, but still, uh, we can't retire for us. Retirement day for the Christian is going to come in the afterlife. You may remember Luke 13, verse 24, Jesus talks about the people who strove for heaven. He said, to get to this particular place, you have to strive. It's not an easy walk. It's not an easy life. There are these works and these other activities that are associated with it. <coughs> Another point of the, point, uh, another point of the uh, idea here in Revelation 14, as far as the works following them, uh, may, as I said, kind of tie into the military. We've talked about this before. Not everybody agrees. But in Matthew 10:41, Jesus said, He that receives a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a prophet's reward. Uh, he, he 
seems to indicate that there are going to be some distinctions in eternity. If that's true, uh, you have, for example, too, uh, when you think about Matthew 25, the talents. People are pictured as receiving you know, different things in eternity. Uh, but once again, if that's true, then still you go back, I think, to the military analogy and you show that the big thing that counts, there may be some individual differences there, people did different things in the service, but in the end, we are all one united group, and those different things that we did actually makes the unit um, even more unique and special. Uh, another key point here is what Paul said to the Corinthians, 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty-eight: Be ye steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in what? The work of the Lord. Well, that's what we've seen from these other passages. Then he says this, you abound in the work of the Lord because you know your labor is not in vain. Your works are going to follow you into eternity. Somehow. Revelation 14, verse 13. Well, that's good news. What's not going to follow the Christian into eternity? What's not going to follow? Well, okay, that. But what about the sins? Those are going to be expunged from the record. But what will stick with us? Those works. So we have the chance to be active for Christ, whether that's a small thing, whether that's um, you know, something that's not you know, seemingly insignificant. Those are things that we uh, need to try to do on a regular basis. A couple of the quick points, and then we'll see if there's some things that you want to ask. He also uses the word henceforth. He says, let's read it again to get it right before us. Uh, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord. For from henceforth, yea, saith the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors. Sometimes people will say henceforth, and they mean from this point forward. Well, I don't think John is using henceforth in the way that he's trying to say, well, from the time that this book was written. Uh, As you look at the context of the thought, he seems to be saying, henceforth, from what sense? From what perspective? From the time you die. It is at that point that the rest begins to be received by people, and then you have your works following you, and so forth. So, uh, once a Christian dies, and a lot of people dread death, but... When you study the book of Revelation, that just doesn't make sense for the Christian. That is the gateway to entering into that great, that lasting comfort. The grave holds no terror for people. So John's talked about punishment for the unsaved, verses 10 and 11, and now he turns and talks about what the righteous can expect to receive in eternity. Before we pick up with the next verses, any hands that you'd like to uh, toss out? Betty, I'll take you after Stan. I saw you second. This idea... If you put this, once again, in military terms, let's say that you have a funeral and you're burying five vets. As they read something like uh, the eulogy for these vets, you may find that, okay, this one did this, you know, he maybe served overseas, this one didn't serve overseas, but, you know, he was, you know, this, that, and the other. Uh, Five different statements. And yet, 
that's not really the primary thing. It was these people were committed to their country. These people served honorably. These people did a great service, and we are honoring them for the service. So, as I say, the distinctions are there. But even though they exist, the bigger picture is they were all members of this organization. They all served honorably. We are recognizing them. We appreciate them and so forth. And as I say, you know, we're earthly folks. We've not been to heaven. But as I look at the scriptures, this seems to me to be the closest analogy that, that I can give. Because everything's kind of, you know, even among angels, you have the same kind of thing there. We, for example, read about cherubim and seraphim. There are distinctions there. And you've got the, uh, you know, for example, the four living creatures. We'll come back to them in Revelation 15. So it's interesting to me that you, at least on an angelic level, have different angels, different classes, if you will, perhaps we might use it uh, in that particular way. And yet that's not the big thing. There is none of that jealousy, but, you know, different functions, different roles, and yet all part of the same group. So, yes, I think that's, that's very good. Uh, Betty, back to you. And once again, I hate to keep going back to the military, but I think it is such a good analogy for this point. You think about fellas, they sign up, and some of them become 20 or 30-year members of the military. But what about the guy? He's the enlistee. And let's say it's the Army. They deal with ordinances, uh, you know, bombs, those kinds of things. And the first day, this guy is sent on a detail, and somebody fires off uh, a missile and blows him up. He's been in the military for less than 24 hours. How would you view him? All right. Here was a fellow. He was doing what was right. And even though he was in the military for less than 24 hours, he is going to be put in with the same group. And he's going to be regarded as, as just as faithful, just as important than everybody else. Now, his experience is obviously different. But once again, I think the military analogy fits that very, very well. So wherever people come into uh, life, their, their life, and become a Christian and serve faithfully. Right, God says, "Hey, you're part of the deal." And uh, it's almost—it's almost like a quilt. When you look at a quilt that is using different kinds of uh, pieces, you know, well, you know, this one's distinct, and well, this one's unusual. And, well, hey, look at this one. Uh, and you've got all those individual pieces that, when they're put together, they form a magnificent um, item. And that seems to be, you know, what we find in heaven as well. Scott. Sure. They could say, well, we're Baptists, we're Lutheran, we're Christian, we're all part of the same thing, we're working towards the same goal. I mean, do they use that in a way of not understanding it right? Or 
Well, they could. Um, but I think I would argue at that particular point uh, to say, okay, um, when you talk about the military, you know, we're talking about people, um, the UCMJ, the Uniform Code of Military Justice. They do not have multiple manuals. You know, there's not one UCMJ for the Navy, another UCMJ for the military. Uh, that's why they call it the Uniform Code of Military Justice. And to say, they all have to follow the same book. Now, when you have different religious groups, are they all following the same book? Well, when you, for example, if you take the Lord's Supper, someone says a priest administers it. Another group says, well, you know, you can only have half of it. Another group says you partake of it every week. Another group says, well, you partake of it quarterly. How can you get that? I mean, it would be like prosecuting somebody for murder, and you would say, well, okay, both of you people have killed someone, but you get off scot-free, and you have to do life in prison. So, um, yeah, again, they, they could surely try that. I think that probably would be something that some would attempt. But when you go back and you look at how the military is structured, one book to cover them all. And we have that same parallel in the spiritual realm. So th thoughtful question, and that would be how I would deal with that, I think. Okay, Steve, and then we'll take Sherman. Their works follow them, not the works of somebody else. Their works, what we did, follows us. And there's no chance to go back and revise these kinds of things. So it's helpful as far as dealing with some of the ideas that people have about the afterlife. Sometimes people have the idea of soul sleeping. That's also not indicated here. I mean, it sounds like you've got people in a state of consciousness where they're going to be treated either this way or that way, depending on how they live. Okay, uh, Sherman? When you were talking about you know, labor and retiring and stuff, you know, don't just quit. Mm -hmm. It made me remember um, when we lived in Balfour, there was a group that came to Schultz Lewis quite often, at least once every other year, or maybe every year, because it's sojourners. And, you know, several of the church members of the church may know, know who this group is, but it's a bunch of retirees. Um, most of them, about all of them, have RVs. They go from place to place and they use their talents to go to these places to build things, you know, just improve the, the place sure. that they're going. And, you know, of course they would come to church and worship with a good group of people. And, you know, they didn't quit. You know, they, matter of fact, they probably worked more after they retired. Yeah. You know, they did. Uh, it's kind of interesting. When I was at Fried Hardeman this year, I uh, talked to some people um, inadvertently. Uh, but we were staying in the same dorm. Uh, they are part of the congregation where Aaron worships in Kentucky. And we talked about the sojourners. And they said they are really good in a lot of areas except some things like wiring. They came in and wired a building, and when the inspector came, he said, you're going to burn a place down. We gotta, but at least, the heart was, at least the heart was right. So sometimes people are involved in a lot of good activities, but sometimes some things need to be looked at. But, uh, yeah, we probably don't want to need some wiring. But like I say, they, they have the right idea there where we've retired and we're going to try to continue to be active in the Lord's service and so forth, and that needs to be our attitude because we always, at any age, can be of some service to Christ. Dan? Well, I know we're stretching this out, but I think it's a good discussion. It has some really good points to it, but uh, your analogy of the military service and one person does this, one person does that, et cetera, but it's all one group. 
I think that there, a lot of times, it's, it's just personal, um, it's the way people feel about themselves, that they're, they're constantly comparing what they're doing to other people. And to the extent that sometimes it's negative, it's, uh, I don't feel like I'm doing near as much as what the next person is doing, or whatever, but I know the, the military, uh, again, was a real good example of not letting that be an issue, because I know for a long time, I'm a Vietnam War veteran, Vietnam War era veteran, but I never served in Vietnam. And for quite some time, I was kind of shy about telling people that that was the case, because they immediately think, oh, you're somebody who was on the ground and uh, engaging the enemy in Vietnam, and that wasn't at all. But the military will be the first one to tell you, hey, you served here, you weren't there, but if you hadn't been where you were at, that would have been pulling resources from that, the other area. What you do in the military, it doesn't matter whether you're sweeping floors or whether you're commanding troops or whether you're in the Navy, whether you're in the Army, it doesn't matter. You're in the service, you were engaged in what, as a whole, the country essentially was doing to perform this one yeah, and that's really Paul's analogy. He used the body in 1 Corinthians 12. He said the body has many parts, and you know, at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. You may not be the eye, but you know, the, you're the toe or the foot or the finger and so forth. Um, and I went through the same kind of thing. Uh, people say, well, you're in the Air Force. What did you fly? No, I wasn't, I wasn't a flyer. Well, you probably maintained the planes. No, didn't maintain the planes. I was a guy with a typewriter. So, you know, there were some things that I did to kind of keep things moving, but at the same time, it wasn't the glamour of the pilot or the glamour of some of the other jobs. And, and that's, that's what we need to realize here. Okay, 14 through 16, Revelation 14, let's at least get started on these verses. And I saw, and behold, a white cloud, and on the cloud I saw one sitting, like unto a son of man having on his head a golden crown, and, his hand, and in his hand a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the temple, crying with a great voice, to him that sat in the cloud, send forth thy sickle and reap, for the hour to reap is come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. And he that sat on the cloud cast his sickle upon the earth, and the earth was reaped. Okay, a lot of stuff here, and a lot of stuff that's very interesting as we finish out the chapter. Verse 14, picture someone sitting on a cloud. Now once again, you think anybody's literally sitting on a cloud? Probably not. All right, let's try to figure out who is sitting on the cloud. White would be suggestive of purity, holiness, righteousness, and so forth. And when we look at the Bible, we find that clouds are something that God talks about. And you have clouds described in a lot of different ways. The Bible talks about bright clouds, talks about thick clouds, talks about a dark cloud, talks about a swift cloud. There's a great cloud. But out of all these cloud passages, if you will, there's only one time where we read about a white cloud. It's here. So the fact that God has a lot to say about clouds, but in this particular case, uh, just uses this, this uh, white cloud one time, seems to carry special significance. There's another thing that you would see too. If you would go back and you would look at the Old Testament as well as uh, some New Testament passages, Matthew 24 would have an example of this. When the Bible talks about God coming on a cloud, or coming with a cloud, we'll put the point into a, a two-part question. You think that's a good thing or a bad thing? Coming on a cloud. All right. Hmm? So that would be good. 
well, okay, there there could be good, uh, but it, right, it's it's he's coming for judgment. So if you obey him, it's good, uh, but it's going to be bad news for a lot of folks. Now, my understanding, and I think this will be um, substantiated to everybody's satisfaction by the time we get to the end of the chapter, we're talking here about the end of time. We've said before, and we're going to see this again, so it's a good reminder for it. We have how many uh, seals in the book of Revelation? Seven. How many trumpets? Seven. Then when we get to Revelation 15 and 16, we're through with the seals, we're through with the trumpets, so we have this third major symbol. Anybody remember what it is? Seals, trumpets, bowls, vials of wrath, plagues, if you will. He's going to talk about the seven plagues. So three symbols, seven of each, and if you'll think back to what we've said, and this is going to help us a lot, when we look at those first seven seals, Do you remember what the first six of the seven seals describe or associated with? The Christian era. The seventh seal takes us to what's going to happen after the Lord returns. Then we come to the seven trumpets. What do the first six trumpets describe? Life during the Christian era, just like the first six seals. And then as the seventh seal describes what's going to happen when the Lord's return, John also uses the seventh trumpet to describe what's going to happen with the Lord's return. All right, he's through with the seals. He's through with the trumpets. Now we're getting ready for the seven, what do we say? Vials of wrath, the seven plagues. All right, if the first six seals and the first six trumpets describe what takes place throughout the Christian life, guess what we're also going to uh, suggest when we deal with the first six vials of wrath? This is also something that's displayed during the Christian era. The first six of these symbols describe things that take place from really the day of Pentecost to the end of time. But when we deal with the seventh seal, the seventh trumpet, and the seventh vial of wrath, then we're dealing with things that will take place when the uh, Lord returns. Now here, as John begins to kind of head us towards this direction, uh, he gives us some other information about the end of time. And who would you say is going to be the one that's uh, sitting on the cloud? All right, Jesus. He uses the Son of Man expression back in Revelation 1, verse 13 to describe the Lord. And even though here he uses the word like, I think you have to conclude it's the Lord. Another indication, um, and you can see a contrast here, what did he have on his head? There's a, well, he didn't have the sickle on his head. He's got the golden crown on his head. All right. In contrast to the golden crown, what was previously associated with Jesus? All right, so he had the crown of thorns in the past when he was on the earth. Now he's got the golden crown. And then what else does he have? Teresa got the right answer. We want to put it now in a different spot. He's got what? Got the golden crown and he's got a sickle. All right, some of us are old enough to remember what a sickle is. What do you use a sickle for? Oh, all right, I got a bunch of answers. I heard Harvey's the last and that's a good, simple, one-word answer. It's time to go out and harvest. What do you think? Christ is going to come to the earth and harvest tomatoes one day and... Grapes? Probably not out there working on the orange trees. What's he going to harvest? He's going to harvest souls. And that soul harvest is going to encompass how many people? It's going to encompass everybody. So as John picks up with that additional information, beginning with verse 15, we're going to have two different pictures. We're going to have information given as far as harvesting the righteous. There's also going to be information given about harvesting the unrighteous. So that kind of sets the stage for next week's class. We'll finish that out and then, uh, Lord willing, get into Revelation 15. Harvey?